You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Frege's Logic, Revolution or Devolution, by Mike Mazza. So I'd like to start by imagining we are undergraduates entering college, looking at what courses to take, and we see that our school is offering Logic 101. What is your expectation of what a course like that might give you. So if you were like me, like I was when I actually did this 20 years ago, uh, you'll expect Logic 101 to give you something like the art of non-contradictory identification. You expect a class concerned with teaching you principles of reasoning, helping you, becoming, uh, helping you to become a better thinker, Maybe a class that will help you with your studies. The reality is, when you enter Logic 101, that you'll learn that logic is about (laughs) translating plain English into an artificial language, symbolizing that translation, and then doing what amounts to algebra problems shifting from one set of symbols to another, and then maybe translating back to English. This notation is the first order symbolization of the following sentence. There is an X and there is a Y, such that Y is a cat and X feeds Y. And for all Z, if Z is a bird, then X does not feed Z. Or in English, someone feeding a cat isn't feeding a bird. So in this conception of logic, logic studies artificial formal languages. This is just one of the formal languages you would learn if you became like a logic uh, logician. Um, It's the language you'll learn if you take logic 101 from your philosophy department um, as an undergrad or a grad grad student. It's called... First order logic, it's the logic we'll be discussing today. These <clears throat> artificial languages are intentionally detached from natural thinking, from natural language, natural deduction, natural reasoning. Um, they're done so for a number of reasons we'll talk about, but the main one is that the people who founded this, this way of doing logic see natural language and reasoning as unscientifically messy imprecise, ambiguous, um, and they advocate these artificial languages as a way for, in part, to overcome those ambiguities. So what do you get out of a class like this? Well, it might help you understand some papers in the foundations of mathematics. This kind of notation is used there. Um, It won't really even help you study papers in philosophy, though, because nowadays philosophers teach this. They make the grad students learn this, but they don't actually use it in papers. There was a time when you would read a philosophy paper and there would be all this notation, but um, it's kind of, that's over in philosophy. So there's a a disconnect between our expectations of logic. Um, Logic is a kind of tool to help us think better and how logic is studied in logic departments, logic programs, philosophy, Um, mathematics. This disconnect is something that has concerned even people who do logic this way. So uh, an important mid-20th century logician, uh, Yashua Bar-Hillel, raised a kind of concern about this at at a logic conference in the 60s. He, this is a direct quote, he says to his audience, I challenge anyone here to show me a serious piece of argumentation in natural language that has been successfully evaluated as to its validity with the help of formal logic. So no, the point, no one can meet this challenge. Says, I regard this fact as one of the greatest scandals of human existence. <laughs> so if you think logic is important, it gives, it's supposed to give us norms for good reasoning. It's supposed to make us better thinkers, make us more efficient at arriving at the truth. And well, what we have doesn't seem to have any utility in that at all. That's a scandal. 
he goes on to say, how did it come to be that logic, which in the views of at least some people 2,300 years ago, that is the people who founded the science, Aristotle and also the Stoics, um, <clears throat> how, how did it come to be that logic was supposed to deal with the evaluation of argumentation in natural languages has done a lot of extremely interesting and important things, but not this. So <clears throat> the symbolic notation languages that, uh, that we started with, I'm going to be kind of critical of them. I, I don't want this to come across as they, they have no value at all in any context. They do seem to be important for uh, mathematics and, and computer science. My case is going to be that they are not a model of um, natural reasoning, and they're not giving us norms for it. It's not like we should follow their advice to think better. Um, they're, they're more appropriate for something else. So <clears throat> there's this scandal, and the way I think of it is that logic, the art of non-contradictory identification as a science, is effectively dead. There's, there's not really people working on any kind of um, attempt to model natural deduction, natural reasoning in, in a way that would help us do it better. Um, <clears throat> prior to this revolution in logic that, that we're going to talk about today, um, logic studied or was thought of as studying the laws of thought. Uh, it was concerned with actual reasoning, modeling actual, actual reasoning, and that just changed um, after the work of Gottlob Frege. Frege was a uh, late 19th, early 20th century German philosopher, logician, mathematician. Um, <clears throat> the work we're going to be concerned with today is the first one that I bolded, the Begriffschrift, which is German for concept script or concept writing. It's his principal work in, uh, in logic. He's somebody not many people outside of philosophy and logic part departments know about. Um, he's not, uh, I, I didn't check this recently, but I don't, I'm pretty sure he's not in Leonard Peikoff's History of Philosophy uh, lecture course. Yeah, people are shaking their heads, no, yeah. Um, <clears throat> now that course was given early 70s, and I don't think philosophy itself had an appreciation for Frege's importance to it at that time. Um, he was a kind of background influence on people like Russell and Wittgenstein um, and, and other uh, you know, less known figures. But in my view, he's probably the person most responsible for what's called analytic philosophy, linguistic turn in philosophy. He's, he's a significant figure. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about his role in the story of the abandonment of logic as the science or art of, of, of thinking. Um, <clears throat> and you know, there, there's a, a, a much larger story to tell about philosophical trends that were pushing us to abandon the science of logic as, as, an, as an art of thinking. Um, what Frege did is offer a new way of doing logic that made it comfortable to abandon the old way of, of logic. It's a, it's a replacement for it. So if you have criticisms of something, but you don't have a better thing to offer, the old thing kind of stays around. So he offers a, an alternative. Um, <clears throat> all right. So there's a shift in the way philosophers and logicians think about the subject matter of logic that occurs um, in Frege and then in the, in the years uh, after him. So I want to start uh, getting us toward, towards understanding Frege's revolution by just contrasting the old way with the, with the way that Frege is going to offer us as an alternative. So <clears throat> the old way of thinking about logic, I've been saying, is logic as the laws of thought. This is the, something that goes back to um, Aristotle. It's the conception of logic that if, if any of you have listened to Leonard Peikoff's uh, lecture course, uh, just called logic, right? Um, 
it's, it's the conception of logic that's going on, um, going on there. It's supposed to model actual reasoning and give you like rules for, for, for good sound reasoning. And what I mean by it being grounded in actual thought processes here is that um, think about these two sentences. Sent sentence number one, all cats are mammals. Sentence number two, I'm feeding a cat, but I'm not feeding a mammal. Those are contradictory, right? Um, so <clears throat> even if you've never taken a logic class, you can say those two sentences to a little kid, and they say, there's something wrong that doesn't make any sense. They're, they conflict with each other. So in some way, we all have the ability to see that simple or complex propositions kind of contradict each other. There's something we're doing. We might not be able to articulate it. Just like we can construct a grammatical sentence and not know anything about the rules of grammar, there's some kind of reasoning methods we have that um, logic is, in part, trying to make explicit so we can do them better so that, that we, can, we can improve our thinking. Um, and that's the kind of old project. The new project thinks of natural thought, natural language, natural reasoning as ambiguous, defective, vague. And um, the new logic is offered as a way to remedy this. In particular, it's concerned with um, modeling the reasoning that goes into math proofs, basically. Um, I'll talk about this a little more in a minute, but there's a divergence here of, of goals between, uh, between the two approaches. The <coughs> old conception of logic operated on a, a distinctive understanding of what is a proposition and what's its logical structure that the new logic differs in. So the old logic, the logic of Aristotle, the logic you might have learned in Leonard Peikoff's logic class, thinks of proposition as having subject predicate form. All cats are mammals. The subject is all cats. The predicate is mammals. There's one concept being applied to a whole class or the class in part. So you could say all cats are mammals. You could say some cats are friendly. The subject is some cats. The predicate is friendly. Propositions are constructed out of subject and predicate with something called a copula. It's like the connector. It's the logical connector. Uh, in English, this is split between all and is, or some and is, or all and is not, or some and is not. There's, there's four uh, constructions that go into it. Some languages, you could just have one term uh, in between your subject and predicate. It's, it's a linguistic uh, difference. Um, <coughs> in Frege's way of thinking about the proposition, you no longer have subject predicate form. You have what's called function argument form. So a function is, um, you know, think about like the plus function in, in math. It's an operation that takes an input and gives you a, a different output. Um, so he thinks of concepts like functions. They're incomplete objects. You think of the concept cat. Well, that concept functionally is like dot, dot, dot is a cat. And by itself, that's an incomplete thought. It needs to be completed by an argument. So uh, Izzy is a cat, completes the, completes the whole sentence, completes the whole proposition. That's why uh, a sentence like all cats are mammals is rendered for all things, if that thing is a cat, then it is a mammal in Frege's logic. We'll get into that, uh, too, in a little more detail in a moment. <clears throat> in the old logic, the primary object is the term. The old logic, Aristotle's log logic is sometimes called term logic. Terms are like uh, cat, mammal, think of it as concepts, um, but not necessarily concepts. Uh, a whole phrase could be a term, like the happy brown cat, that together might be a term. The happy brown cat is a mammal. Propositions are built out of terms, and it's those terms that give the proposition meaning. 
in contrast in the new logic, concepts are functions which only have meaning in the context of a proposition. Because a concept is an incomplete thing which has to be completed by an argument. Remember, is a cat, what, what is that? It's not even a complete thought. You need the completion of it. Um, and when you complete it, you have the whole proposition and that completion gives the concept meaning. It's sometimes called the context principle. In the old way of thinking about logic, something called propositional logic is uh, thought to be a special case of term logic. So let me explain that just for a minute. So <clears throat> if you think propositions have subject predicate form, all cats are mammals, that's the standard form, all, all S is P, some S is P, et cetera. And then you read a sentence like I have up here in italics. If it's wet out, then it's raining out. You say, well, that's a, that's a proposition. It asserts something. Does that have subject, like the form all S is P? Doesn't seem like it does. Uh, it's hard to understand how it might. Um, those kind of sentences have their own logic. It's called propositional logic. Uh, they there are sentences uh, or propositions that involve connectors like if then, and, or, and then combinations of those. It's the logic, logic the Stoics came up with. In the old way of thinking about logic, you translate those sentences into subject predicate form. So if it's, if it's wet out, then it's raining out is translated into something like all states in which outside is wet are states in which it's raining out. There's a controversy amongst logicians how to do this and it's not exactly completely convincing that this is the right thing to do, but this is, this is one way to understand propositional logic in term logic. It's just to translate it uh, this way. In <coughs> Frege's logic, it's kind of the opposite way. So Propositional logic is basic and term logic is sort of derived. So all cats are mammals is converted into for all x, if x is a cat, then x is a mammal. That's a statement that's got that if-then thing in there. So in the kind of old way of thinking about it, there was this effort to translate propositional um, propositional logic into term logic. I said there was controversy, dissatisfaction with it. Like if you did like a poll in like 1800 or something of logicians, probably they'd say, maybe you could do this, but maybe it's, it's probably more likely just two systems that aren't really connected. There's just two things. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about there being two systems in a minute. So the last difference I want to point out is that in the old way of thinking about logic, you couldn't formalize mathematical proofs. Think of like Euclid's proofs in the elements. The Aristotelian logic is supposed to give you rules, principles for understanding argument, understanding reasoning, um, and they can't really apply those rules that they have to the arguments in Euclid's elements. And that's like a simple case if you think about the kind of complicated argument, like by the time of the 19th century, you have the calculus and non-Euclidean geometry and all this even more complex math. And so you can't even understand the elements of Euclid. How are you gonna understand like the cutting edge math? They couldn't do this, uh, the old logic couldn't do this for two interrelated reasons. So one is they didn't understand logically how relational concepts work. A rel relational concept is like um, father. So it's Pete is the father of Mike. It's a relating of two things. Uh, Mike feeds Izzy. Feeding is like a relation between two things. Uh, Romeo loves Juliet. There's a relation between two things. Those concepts, those relational concepts, 
um, were not understood in the context of the old Aristotelian logic. And <clears throat> related to that is that logic couldn't do, do propositions that had more than one generality in it. So <clears throat> think of a generality as like all or some or none, right? So if I said the sentence, um, every boy loves some girl, that's a favorite of logicians, that sentence. Every boy loves some girl. Well, okay, there's a relational love, right? And there's, there's every boy, but there's also some girl. How do you understand that in subject predicate form? Well, maybe you say that every boy is the subject, and then you think of love some girl. Maybe you translate it as it is a lover of some girl, so then that's, that whole thing is the predicate. But then that seems to like miss out on a lot of logical stuff going on in that sentence. And then why couldn't you do it another, the same thought in the same way? Like some girl is a beloved of, some, of, of every boy. Like couldn't that be the, so <clears throat> there's not really a, a good way to understand those kind of um, propositions in the old logic. And Frege's logic is, the first system of logic that can actually do that. Can both give rules for relations and uh, multiple gener multiply general sentences that actually like line up with how you might think about those sentences in a kind of, in a, like, um, just a, an intuitive way. Like if you hear a sentence involving two generalities, would you, would you, how would you think about it? Um, <clears throat> so, that's the kind of contrast between the old way of thinking and this new way of thinking we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about. Um, <clears throat> oh, just uh, a, a note on this multiple generality business. Remember my example from a few minutes ago: all cats are mammals. I'm feeding a cat, but I'm not feeding a mammal. Everybody understands I'm, I'm making a contradiction. So <clears throat> there's, prior to Frege, there's no like formal way to prove that that's a contradiction. And what I mean by that is, if I'm uh, saying um, A is not A, like, you don't need to prove that I'm contradicting myself. It's like just what a contradiction is. But if there's some intermediate steps, like let's, let's say I say uh, A equals B, B equals C, A is not C. Like there's a couple steps to see the contradiction. It's, there's a, there's a, a, a gap. Um, and you, know, you have a kind of rule you can apply that about transitivity of, of one thing equaling another. You can understand the contradiction that way. So that's what I mean by there's no like proof that those two sentences are contradictory. You'd think there'd be some kind of rule or principle or norm of keeping your terms consistent that those putting those two sentences would violate, but there's no, there, nobody knows what it is if there is one. Um, okay, so <clears throat> let's talk about Frege a little bit. His uh, revolution is to unify both the term way of thinking about logic and the propositional way about think, of thinking about logic into one system. And in doing so, he's able to offer a formal way of showing that those kind of sentences I, was, I just used are contradictory. He can give you formal rules for understanding the um, the logic of multiply general uh, sentences, multi multiply general propositions. He can offer you a logic for relational terms. And he can start to show the formal steps involved in, um, in, in math, in math proofs. So <clears throat> when he does this, there's, so when he, when he first does this, uh, logicians and mathematicians are kind of cold to it, but a few decades later, it kind of takes over everything. Um, it's one of these, like, uh, I don't know, lost, uh, lost and then found in the history of thought kind of things. So <clears throat> I want to talk about how his 
system works, how he arrives at it. So the first thing to say is just a little bit about his motivation in doing this. He has a philosophical view of mathematics called logicism. And it's a view that mathematics just is logic. Not that mathematics is logic applied to numbers or logic applied to quantity. He thinks that like fundamentally mathematics is going to boil down to like logical truths like A is A or excluded, excluded middle or something other things that we don't need to go into. It's just going to be logical axioms at the root of mathematics. Um, <clears throat> it's not a view I think anybody should have adopted ever, but it's, it was a kind of thought that a lot of people had um, in, in the late 19th, early 20th century that, that you could do this and that it would be important to do this. And if you think that that's what the relationship between logic and mathematics is, that it's, that it's kind of like an identity relationship, that one is the other, um, and you look at the old Aristotelian logic, and you see that it can't even make sense of something like Euclid's elements, right? So here's just think of the, uh, which proposition is this. Proposition 20, book 9, there are an infinite number of prime numbers. These are the first two lines. I say that there are more prime numbers than A, B, and C. That's a relational. Just to, just to even express the, the claim um, is not possible in, in the old Aristotelian logic because more is, you relate one thing is more than another. That's a relation, and this logic can't handle that. Um, <clears throat> so part of the context here is this, this logicist motivation the inadequacy of the old logic, and the now the next bit is the increased interest in mathematics on the study of functions. So I mentioned this earlier. A function is just like, you know, think of a simple plus as a function in mathematics. Um, it takes two numbers and spits out a third, and the two inputs are called arguments. So just, um, so in case anybody's confused, this use of the term argument is not the same as like in what's the, if you read somebody's essay and say, what's his argument? Why did it, this is a different uh, use of that term. It's just the, the input to a function is the, the argument. So <clears throat> the revolution he achieves basically boils down to reconceptualizing the logical structures of propositions functionally. This is what allows him to do all the other stuff that we'll talk about. So here's his revolution in five steps. I'm giving you the, the five-step version of it. We're going to start by jettisoning the subject predicate form. Right? So that's all S or some S is or isn't P. That's the subject predicate form of the proposition. We're going to think of concepts as functions. And they're functions which take individuals as arguments. This is going to be important. Individuals as arguments. They don't take other concepts as arguments. Individuals. So for example, here's a sentence. Izzy is a cat. The function is a cat. Dot, dot, dot just means there's a gap in the, in the function. It has to be completed by something. So we like to keep our notation pretty economical, so we'll get rid of the, all the is a cat, the English stuff that is confusing and distracting, and just have C for cat. C is a cat. And then we don't like dots, so we'll put a variable there. Not really a variable. We'll put a symbol there that indicates some individual would go there, but we're not going to say which one. And then if we want to say Izzy is a cat, we'll just give Izzy a letter I. So that's the symbolization, the notation. So <clears throat> how do we do something like this then? Cats are mammals. Think of, well, um, concepts are functions with gaps filled by arguments. 
So maybe you think you do, uh, okay, mammal, mammal is a function with a gap. Maybe you fill the gap with C for cat, but that's not right because cat's a concept and functions take individuals as arguments. You'd have to put an individual there. Say Izzy's a mammal. Maybe Izzy could go there. But then that's not the same. That's not what that sentence says in English. The sentence says cats are mammals. So you need some more stuff. You need more, more resources to articulate this. And to do that, we introduce what's called the quantifier. Say so the quantifiers, all in sum, apply not to terms, not to concepts, or categories or classes. They apply to sets of individuals. So you wouldn't say all cats. You would translate a sentence that said all cats into a sentence like this. For all things, if that thing is a cat, then it is a mammal. Why do you have to say for all things? Well, because what we're putting in the argument place is an individual, could be any individual, all of them, including me and you, this sentence applies to us. For all things, if it's a cat, it's a, it, then it's a mammal. Well, for me, if I'm a cat, then I'm, a, I'm not a cat. I'm still a mammal, but I'm not, right? <laughs> and this is how it's notated. That, that part for all things gets this crazy upside down A, symbolizes for all or every. For all X, if X is a cat, then X is a mammal. So then let's reintroduce our notation for the concepts. For all X, if X is C, then X is M. And then we even have a notation for if then, give it a little arrow called implication. For all x, if x is c, then x is m. That says the same thing as all cats are mammals. In a, in the notation of Frege, well, this isn't actual Frege. This is the notation we use now. Frege's no, actual notation in the original book is like super confusing because it's two dimensional. Like you have to know like where on the page something is to know whether it means all or some. Yeah, it's, that's why we don't use it anymore because, <laughs> because it's, if you think this is hard. You know, uh, <clears throat> okay, so that's how we do the quantifier all. And then here's for some. Some cats are friendly. Again, it's quantifiers apply to individuals because individuals complete arguments. There is a thing such that it is a cat and it is friendly. That's how you say that some cats are friendly in this language. So again, we have notation, backwards capital E. That means some, some X, or there is a, right? there is an X, such that X is a cat and X is friendly. We don't like English again, so we replace and with the hat, the up pointing arrow. So if we adopt this way of thinking about the logical structure of the proposition, we can see that, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. One more point. So we have this quantifier strategy. Now, what about relations? Well, we're thinking about these, this, the proposition functionally, concepts or functions. Well, some concepts have two argument places. Think of a, rela like a, a relation like loves. So Alice loves Frank. You could think of that as X loves Frank, or you could think of it as Alex, uh, Alice loves Y. X loves Y. Right? It's a two-place function. Loves by itself is incomplete. It needs two things to complete it and make a thought. So you can do the notation like that, LXY. Right? Or and then if you want to put in your individuals, you have to give little letters. So LAF for Alice loves Frank. Now we can combine that. We can combine both of those moves, the, the quantifying over individuals and thinking of concepts as functional 
with you know, many places, as many places as the concept needs. Um, and you can think, of, well, these quantifiers can uh, nest, think of like with parentheses, without any kind of limit. So here's the sentence that troubled us before, every boy loves some girl. How would you do that? Well, you'd start for all x. If x is a girl, then there is a y such that y is a boy and x loves y. And you can keep going with this. You can have as many uh, quantifiers and variables as you need to express whatever complex thought you're trying to express. So then you can symbolize in this notation all the complex math proofs you want, and you can check them for their validity, like mechanically, just algorithmically. Like there's little rules that one step at a time, okay, I have this sentence, so that means I can replace um, this x with an i, and I can, or add an x here, and there's all these, you know, if you take this class, it's like solving a lot, um, I don't know, it's like Sudoku or something, it's like a fun logic problem. If you just think of it as a game, it's actually, can be kind of fun, I enjoyed it. Um, but of course, if you think of it as having any kind of connection to like how your mind actually operates and processes information, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I think every girl loves some boy, not for all things. If there's a girl, then, then it's a boy, then it loves a boy, and there's another thing that if that's a girl, it's loved by a boy. Like, no, I just think every boy, <laughs> what is the sentence? Every girl loves some boy. That's a, all right. <clears throat> okay, so what is, what is accomplished by this? Well, so one is it, it kind of unifies in a more un convincing way the, two, the old logics, right? So there's the term logic, all S is P, and there's propositional logic, if P, then Q. I said uh, there's a way to unify it in term logic where you say for all states that are P, then there are states that are, that's kind of, uh, are, are, uh, seems like made up just to solve a problem. But in the Frege system, it has less of a feel of being made up to solve a problem. It is made up for other things, but not to solve this, uh, this particular problem. So there's a kind of unification achieved here in logic. You have like one logic now. <clears throat> you have the understanding of relation, a logical understanding of relations, which, which befuddled logicians for you know, a thousand years. Right? And you have multiple generality. So it seems like a big accomplishment if you're, if you're a logician, if you're thinking about this stuff. Um, these are problems that were unsolved by the prior way of thinking about propositions. It seemed like an in, maybe it's an intractable problem. Now you have an alternative way of thinking where the problems seem to be easily solved. And then you make the case. Yeah, the problem with the old way wasn't just that we weren't smart enough. It was that there was something fundamentally wrong with it. Is propositions are not subject predicate form. Their function argument, they're these complicated things. <coughs> so, oh, yeah, so multiple generality is um, a proposition is multiply general if there are two or more uh, quantifiers. That is, if there are two, two or more. Um, concepts like all or some. So in the sentence, uh, let me go back a second. Uh, every girl loves some boy. There's, there's, it's multiply general because there's a, an occasion of every, which is the same thing as all, right? Every means all. Uh, and there's an occasion of some. So uh, every, uh, sorry, I keep saying it wrong. Every girl loves some boy is a multiply general sentence because Two terms are quantified. Uh, girl is given every, and boy is given some. Versus a sentence like all cats are mammals. That's a, that's a singular, sing, um, singularly general, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, right. So just, right, right, exactly. So just cat in all cats are mammals is quantified. Mammal is not quantified. Uh, good, thanks for asking. Uh, okay, so where was I? Okay, <clears throat> so 
is this a model of natural language, natural, sorry, natural deduction, natural reasoning? I mean, yeah, it, it, on the face of it, it doesn't seem very plausible. I mean, if you just have a sentence like, all cats are mammals, and you say, well, is there some kind of hidden logical structure like uh, for all x, if x is a cat, x is a mammal? That's not, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not like super crazy. I think it's more like when you think about multiple generality that it starts to be really, um, really at odds with, with, with natural logic processing. Um, but I think it, it, it actually gets worse than that, as we'll see in a, in a second. So <clears throat> he does provide a unified system for the old logics. And he does give you a system that can solve some problems that needed solving in the old logic. But there's a cost, and the costs are two. So <clears throat> one is it alienates logic from natural reasoning. It, it, in, in effect, if you think this way, you're, you're going to be pushed to abandon the project of modeling natural reasoning um, in a logical system if you go, and that's exactly what happens. Like, people stop worrying about this. Frege thinks that's a dumb project. He's contemptuous of natural language arguments, and he, he you know, he, this is the logic of pure thought. It's like a hyper-rationalism. Like, there's a kind of pure way of thinking detached from actual thought that we, you know, we, this, is, this is what we study in logic. And um, the other cost, I think the first is actually a consequence of the second, is <clears throat> that it abandons a kind of conceptual form of cognition. It's um, all about processing individuals. There's concepts or functions over individuals. There's no more pure processing of concepts, thinking one concept is subsumed by or applied to another. It's one class of individuals is encompassed by or a subclass of another individual. So it's all in terms of individuals. It's no longer thinking about concepts. Yeah. So, um, well, let, let me ask that in the Q and A because that'll it'll take it'll take me a few minutes to answer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's two points I want to hit on, and then we'll do uh, then we'll do questions. So the first is it alienates us from natural reasoning. So <clears throat> remember these two sentences I did earlier, and I said you can look at them and it, you can tell that they're contradictory. You don't maybe you don't have an explanation of why they're contradictory like in terms of like formal rules. But you can tell that there are, there's a contradiction. You could say these sentences to little kids. They don't know any logic, and they'll know that there's, you're you know, pulling their leg or something. right? Um, <clears throat> so we know how to symbolize them now in this logical system. Yeah, so that's implausible. Um, you can actually do a formal proof that they're contradictory. How many steps do you think it is? Anybody want to guess? If, if I've talked to you about this and you know, don't guess. Who wants, anybody want to throw out a number, like four, seven? seven. It's 15, approximately. <laughs> uh, I was going to like put it on the slides, but when I was doing it, I wasn't confident enough that I got each step right, and I couldn't get the software I have that checks the proof to work the way I wanted. And then when I put what I had up there, the lines were so long that you, it was just, you couldn't read anything, so you get this bullet point instead. But, <laughs> but the point is that 15, you know, 15, 12, you know, there's, these proofs all have options, so the most economical one I've heard of is 12, but 15, some, you can do it in 20, I think. Uh, so <clears throat> how plausible is it that when you're reckoning that these two propositions are contradictory, you're somehow unconsciously going through a 15-step process that Output? No, not really. Um, <clears throat> so, all right. So I'm just looking at the clock. Um, so let me go through this quickly. So, <clears throat> what actually do we want out of a formal theory of natural deduction? 
Well, I think what we should want is some um, articulation of what process we're going through when we ask ourselves whether a pair of propositions are consistent. And the point of doing that, are, there, there's a number of points of doing it. So one is <clears throat> if you just want like the rules of deductive reasoning, this is where they, they come from. So, so okay, so um, deductive reasoning involves eliminating contradictions, being consistent with your between your premises and deriving conclusions. And so you can kind of do this in an intuitive sense and then you articulate what you're doing. And then in the simple cases, you have a rule for how you get the simple cases right. And then you like extrapolate that to the complex cases and now you can check things. Um, <clears throat> I think the actual main cash value of a formal theory of natural deduction is to, to, to check certain aspects of human reasoning like mechanically. I think that's a major value. I also think it's important for philosophers doing epistemology to have a good view, like a right view of natural deduction because that's part of like human cognition. So if that's, if that's this object of your investigation, you need to know all the parts. Um, <coughs> so there's an issue with whether or not um, Frege's logic uh, is a model of natural deduction. And I'm saying it's not. No, I'm not saying there's not some other value to it. But if you think the value is that it models natural reasoning, then, then that's, that's not the case. And <clears throat> I think what's going on here is that in this logic, remember, it's all about the the um, the way Frege con con conceives of the proposition is that singular propositions, propositions concerning individuals, are logically fundamental or or primary. Um, so a singular proposition is a proposition like um, Izzy is a cat. The subject is a single individual. Um, the author of Atlas Shrugged was Russian-American. So that sentence, the author of Atlas Shrugged, refers to one individual person. That's the logical fundamental object, is, is naming and referring to single things in Frege's way of thinking about logic. My counterclaim is that singular propositions are singular in object, but they're um, universal or, or general in form. And that, so Frege's got a kind of confusion between object and form that's going on in his logic. So what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> I think the logic of a English sentence like Ayn Rand is a philosopher actually has the logical form like this. Uh, some Ayn Rand is a philosopher. So why do I think that? People say, what? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, if we're thinking about a sentence like this logically, and we're adopting the kind of term logic, Aristotelian way of thinking about logic, um, it's primarily a logic about uh, the application of one concept to another. So you think cats are mammals. So think of this, here's an argument, all cats are mammals, all mammals are animals, all cats are animals, right? It's kind of this transition. Now, now um, you can put into that something that's not a concept, like uh, Izzy. So uh, all cats are mammals. Izzy is a cat. Izzy is a mammal. So you're treating an individual as if it were uh, a, a term in that in that in that context. So in a term logic. Names are kind of um, special cases or edge cases. They're like concepts with one reference. So um, if you think of them that way, uh, they have what's sometimes called wild quantity. That is, they're 
wild, wild, like a wild card. Yeah, wild quantity. So they can be all or some, it doesn't matter. They're indifferent to quantity because there's only one thing. Right? The difference between all and some matters when, when there's a bunch of them. And it doesn't matter logically when there's just one. Um, <clears throat> so uh, let me just uh, get to this last point and then we'll take questions. So <clears throat> there are alternatives to Frege's system which are consistent with the uh, conception of, uh, the old conception of logic. They take seriously the goal of modeling natural deduction. Um, the one I like is called term functor logic. Just consider that a name. It doesn't matter what functor means. It's just the name of it. Um, <clears throat> it's more inferentially powerful, powerful than Frege's logic. So it's like a, it's like a stronger logic. Um, and it operates on the principles of the old Aristotelian logic. It's more of a model of natural deduction. So here I have an example of comparison. So on the, on the left-hand side is that um, all cats are mammals. Someone feeding a cat isn't feeding a mammal. Remember that example? So on the left is the Frege version. And I said it takes 15 steps to prove that it's a contradiction. On the right-hand side is the Neo-Aristotelian term functor proof. So it's one step. It's a one-step proof. And the way the Neo-Aristotelian logic works is it thinks of um, logic as involving uh, opposition. So, so it's symbolized with plus and minus. So all you do to do deduction is cancel out terms that have opposition. So um, all, all cats are mammals. That's, a, that's the first line. Um, someone feeding a cat is feeding a mammal. Eh, sorry, someone feeding a cat is not feeding a mammal. Then you just do your addition of term, like algebra. So minus C and plus C cancel out, right? So if you add it all up, what does it add up to? What well, adds up to the last line? So what does the last line add up to, though? Zero, yeah, so contradictions, everything cancels out and you say nothing. This is kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> so I mean, whether this is the right, whether this is the right, like ultimately the right formal logic, you know, we can leave for another day. Um, but it's, if, if one of your standards is, does this have any contact with like actual natural deduction? In certain ways, it seems to me that it, it clearly does. Um, because when I think about like syllogistic reasoning, like all cats are mammals, um, all 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 mammals are cat are, are animals. Conclusion: all cats are animals. Didn't I didn't I just like somehow cancel out mammal and just have a remainder? Like I did something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. So you know that's just advertisements for an alternative, and the. I mean, the, the, the takeaway from this is to encourage people interested in logic and logical formalisms to think of what they're doing with something like Frege's first order logic or its descendants as valuable, important, not having anything to do with modeling um, human reasoning. They're modeling something else. And the question is what? And <clears throat> to point you to the fact that there are alternative formal logics that take seriously the project of modeling natural reasoning, and to hope that some of you might uh, explore them, because these are um, radically underexplored in comparison to the Frege logics. I, I think I could probably name everybody working on on those logic now, and one of them is well past the age of retirement. And, uh, so <clears throat> there are non-Fregean versions of a lot of what seems good about Frege, um, the multiple generality, the relations, even its aspect, uh, applications to mathematics, there are um, Aristotelian versions of, and computer science. Um, <clears throat> so you know, I, I thought about having the last slide say something like, um, logic is dead, long live logic, but uh, that seemed too like dramatic. 
Uh, <clears throat> so uh, I think I'll close there and leave the last uh, few minutes for questions. So. Okay, we only have we only have five official minutes, so questions need to be concise questions. So so we get as many people as we can. So Adam, go ahead. Okay, um, I think that Frege is uh, metaphysically right that is in reality there are only entities, individual objects, and as Ayn Rand pointed out. A concept is an open class of individual objects. And this is the basis uh, of object-oriented logics that are used to unify psychology in the form of natural language reports from experts in the case of building expert systems, for example, and other of what is generally called artificial intelligence systems. Um, however, um, once what's, we form what's your, concepts... What's your, what's your question? Okay, the yeah. question is, uh, is Ayn Rand's theory of concepts otherwise known with a one-to-one -one correspondence as object orientation, a grand unification of Aristotelian and Fregian logic, because I've been using it as such for two decades, and I don't see anything wrong with well, what I've I, been I doing. Don't, I don't know about the object-oriented programming. I just know the Frege logic, so I, I, can't, I can't comment on that. Is it a unification of Aristotle and um, Frege? I don't see how it would be. There's just those, so those, when I had the, the two oppositions, like the way, the old way of thinking about it and the new way of thinking about it. I mean, so far as I know, I, from secondary literature and from like the objectivist oral tradition, Rand's on board with all the Aristotelian commitments. So if, if you think that the proposition is, um, function, is log, its logical structure is functional, I mean, I don't see how that's compatible with the subject predicate conception of the proposition. And so the question of the, is Rand unifying the two, um, at that, I don't see how okay. that could be. I think we need to spend an hour together. Okay, yeah, but I think. I, Ayn Rand I'd is be more than happy to talk yeah. about it, but we, yeah, we got to Ayn Rand is definitely going. not on board with Aristotle's idea of universals. Well, and that's, that's true, but let's talk about it we'll, after. We'll yeah. talk about it because it's a long topic, but okay. I think Adam, Adam, that we have your to, question we, we has to, a resolution. We have to okay. get going. We have two minutes left for questions. Uh, James. Um, can you briefly state what you thought the form object error was Frege was making? Yeah. Uh, so it's true that the objects of uh, concepts are um, individual things, like concrete entities or actions. But the form in which we hold them is, um, is in the, f we, we cognize them, so sometimes it's put, we cognize them universally. And <clears throat> I think the form of the proposition and the form of like all, all of our logical tools needs to respect that universality of the form of concepts and logical operations. And that the Frege formalism and the Frege way of thinking about propositions uh, does not, is basically my claim. And the thing about naming and names is it's just a kind of special case of like, think about how, how, do, we, how do we indicate individuals using concepts? So this water bottle, which one? This one here in my hand that I'm holding now, like it, it, it takes a lot of work to do it um, because the kind of uh, the linguistic conceptual faculty, it's, it's a faculty 
that is always, even when referring to individuals, in a universal form. Um, and I, I think that's like, I don't have the entirety of that, how to think about that in the context of logic sorted out, but I think that's the essential issue of, it's just think, think when you're thinking about logic, you're thinking about form, form of cognition. Um, the, you're thinking about the how, not the what. I mean, and you're thinking about the how, not the what, in a way that's almost completely abstracted from the, from the what. Um, so, I guess, we're at, I guess we're at time, uh, and I have nothing else to do. So if you want to talk more, <laughs> come find me afterwards in the lobby or something, and we'll talk about it. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.